Hey everybody, I've been a little slow the last couple weeks getting the podcasts up and that's because of preparations for my trip to the Philippines and tomorrow is the big day and uh, so before I leave tomorrow I'm getting these um, previous two podcast episodes up and uh, that's about all the update I have for now so enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn today to Acts chapter 11. Verse 19 says, Now they which were scattered abroad... Upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, uh, traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. And you understand that that uh, here at this time, these people that are going out from the Jerusalem church, their understanding is that for at least the time being, uh, the will of God was for them to speak to the Jews, Right. And so they're going out into these other these other uh, nations uh, outside of Israel, but who they're speaking to is they're speaking to other scattered Jews in those nations. And in verse 20 it says, And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. Okay, now uh, here we have the city of Antioch. And this is there's actually a couple of, of cities in the Bible named Antioch. But this is Antioch in Syria. Uh, Syria is the nation both today and, and in Bible times, a nation up to the north of Israel. If you're familiar with the geography there and you think about where Israel is along the Mediterranean Sea, Syria is up to the north of Israel. And uh, Antioch was a, a, a prominent city in Syria in that day. Of course, the, the very prominent city in Syria is Damascus. But uh, Antioch was a, a prominent city as well. And you see it says that they they spake unto the Grecians. Now again, it just made the point that they were speaking to none but unto the Jews only. And the Grecians here are not Gentiles. When the, when the Bible uses the term Grecians, it is talking about Greek-speaking Jews. Okay, The, um, the Greek word would be... Uh, before we could we could anglicize it to say it's Hellenists and Hellenistic Judaism was uh, Hellenistic meaning pertaining to Greece or the Greeks. Um, Hellenistic Judaism was kind of a, a mixture of Hebrew Judaism with a lot of Greek culture and, and customs. Okay, if you go back, go back to Acts chapter six and um, notice. Notice here, this isn't the first place in Acts that we've seen the Grecians mentioned. Um, back in Acts chapter 6, notice here there's in verse 1, there's a dispute in the Jerusalem church. It says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Now, here the, the Hebrews are the Hebrew-speaking Jews, and the Grecians are the Greek-speaking Jews. 
And you can see that the, the uh, Greek-speaking Jews here are upset. Uh, they feel like, as, as they're living there in Jerusalem and they're having all things common, they feel like the Grecian widows are being neglected as the, you know, as the, the uh, daily service is performed as they distribute the food or whatever that people needed. And um, they, that's, we've looked at that in a previous lesson. That's where then they ordain these first deacons in that Jerusalem church. Uh, by the way, when it mentions the names of all of those deacons in verse 5, uh, it says the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. Uh, all those names of those first deacons are all Greek names. They're not Hebrew names. And... Um, so you understand there were a significant number of Grecian Jews at Jerusalem. Uh, remember, you know, many of these people would have been saved when they're there at the day of Pentecost. They, they came there to worship and they hear the preaching of the disciples in, in all these different tongues. And uh, all of those names are, are Grecian names of those deacons. Um, notice there that, that one of those deacons is a proselyte of Antioch. Um, when it says he's a proselyte, it means that, that he was not born a Jew. Uh, he was a Gentile, a, a Syrian, a, we can assume, uh, who converted to Judaism. And he was from that city of Antioch. And if we go back to our, to our text, the, the city of Antioch uh, actually was a, was a center of Hellenistic Judaism. Uh, the Jews at Jerusalem would have tended more toward Hebrew Judaism. Uh, and, of course, the Pharisees, the, the sect of the Pharisees, they very much emphasized the Hebrews being separate from the Gentiles, where Hellenistic Judaism um, felt it was fine for, for Jews to adopt the Gentile, kind of the Gentile way of life. It would be the same kind of thing you see today. You know, there are a lot of different groups of, of Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews uh, in different places around the world who dress differently than the culture around them. They do many different things than the culture around them. They have their own schools and their own, and they're, they're very much a separate culture. They would be, they would be sort of the, the descendants of Pharisaical Judaism. And on the other hand, you have what's sometimes called Reformed Judaism, which still observes many of the Jewish customs, but they don't really, they don't really emphasize these kinds of things in the law that separated the Jews to the degree that, that uh, Orthodox Judaism would. Okay, so you have that same kind of thing today, and, and those two groups of Jews often are very, very opposed one to another, uh, like we see even among the believers there at, at Jerusalem in the first century. Um, but so, so as these, uh, as these scattered believing Jews are there at Antioch, they begin to speak to the Grecians. Okay. So to, uh, these Grecian Jews at Antioch, who were probably the majority of the Jews at Antioch would have been Grecian Jews and they're preaching to them, the Lord Jesus. And in verse 21, it says, the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. Right, so, so this begins with some unnamed 
uh, men of, of Cyprus and Cyrene who are trying to escape persecution, and they start talking to uh, the Grecian Jews at Antioch. Finally, they decide we need some, some help here, and word gets back to Jerusalem, and they send Barnabas. Now, remember, Barnabas is that one who had, had taken Saul and convinced the apostles to meet with him and um, when he was there for 15 days at, at Jerusalem. Right, so that's the same Barnabas, and Barnabas goes up to Antioch to to go and and teach these growing numbers of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, at Antioch. And verse 23, it says, "Who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. And much people was added unto the Lord." And verse 25, it says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And so the last time we saw Saul, he, he went up to Tarsus, right, to escape uh, an attempt on his life. Um, when he went up to Tarsus, then it said the church is at rest, okay? And here Barnabas, as, as uh, there's these growing numbers of, of believers there at Antioch, uh, he decides he's going to go and get Saul and bring him to Antioch as well. And um, part of that may just be geographic. If you look on a map, you'll see that, that the distance from Antioch to Tarsus is much less, for instance, than from Jerusalem to Antioch, right? So, so he's kind of in, in the neighborhood. It's still, it's still a little ways from Antioch to Tarsus. But um, uh, he, Barnabas sees an opportunity here for uh, Saul to come to Antioch. And you see in verse 26... It says, and when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And, the end of verse 26 says, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so this is the first place in the Bible where we see that term Christian. Uh, if you wonder what they were called prior to this, um, the answer is they were called Jews. Right? They were they were believing Jews. Christianity up to this point, or belief in Jesus Christ, was something that was entirely within Judaism. Right? So we've seen here uh, we've seen Gentile proselytes, right? Gentile converts to Judaism that uh, have have become believers. But for the most part, this is this is. Jews that are being dealt with here in these in these early chapters of the book of Acts. Now we've begun to see some things indicating a change there, and as we continue through the book of Acts, we'll see that focus change. But um, belief in Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, which is the Jewish Messiah, was something within Judaism. That's why they were trying to root it out of the synagogue. You know, the Jewish leaders they didn't care what what the Gentiles were believing. Uh, they cared what was going on in the synagogues and in the temple and that kind of thing. And those unbelieving religious leaders were trying to stop this, if you think of it as a, a movement within Judaism, this belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here at Antioch, they begin to call them Christians. And that term Christian would mean a, a follower of Christ. It um, uh, some, some would say it means little Christ's. And it's, it's possible that that term, notice it doesn't say that the disciples called themselves Christians. It says the disciples were called Christians. And the implication seems to be that maybe this was something that the unbelievers were calling them as sort of a, 
sort of a uh, derogatory term. Um, another thing that, that you see uh, often is, uh, for instance, Paul himself refers to when he was persecuting Christians, he calls them followers of this way. And uh, it's possible that that was how this sect, it, you know, to the unbelieving Jewish leaders, they would have seen it as a sect of Judaism, uh, how, how they were referring to these Christians before they were called Christians is that they called them the followers of the way or, or this way. But um, you see here they're first called Christians. And you know that the, that term Christians only appears a couple of times in the Bible. Um, now, of course, Christianity we, we refer to quite a bit. But in the Bible, that word is only used a couple of times. The other place is over in Peter's epistles where uh, he talks about somebody suffering as a Christian. And, and there again, he could have the idea that they're suffering because they're being accused of being a, a Christian or called a Christian by the unbelievers. Um, but there's nothing wrong with us calling ourselves Christians today. I've heard some people say, well, that's a, that was a derogatory term and we shouldn't use it of ourselves. Uh, but certainly we can co-opt a derogatory term and, and use it. Uh, that's what Peter does there when he talks about somebody suffering as a Christian. But you see that begins here at Antioch. And, you know, this, this city of Antioch is very important to, to church history and to the, to the development of the church and especially to the, the development of the Word of God. Um, you know that if you, if you um, research much or, or study much about the history of the Bible and, and Bible texts, uh, you know that there's a couple different lines of Greek texts that different, different Bibles come from. Um, all of the differences between various Bibles are not translation differences. Some of them are the fact that they use a different source text because all the Greek texts that are out there do not agree. And there's, by and large, this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but not much. Um, by and large, there are, are two different kinds of Greek texts. You know, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and so then people were copying it in Greek. And the, the vast majority of the Greek texts that are out there represent a, a text type that's called by different names. Um, sometimes it's called the majority text. Sometimes it's referred to as the, the Textus Receptus or uh, the Byzantine text. But one of the names for it is the Antiochian text. Because one of the things that, that came to happen here at Antioch was that they were very busy taking the, the you know, these individual letters of the New Testament and copying them out and sending them out. You know, they didn't have a printing press. Uh, the way you made copies of something was not to, to um, you know, print it out on your printer or put it in a copy machine. It had to all be written out by hand. And so even as the, the canon of Scripture was being completed, even before all of the Bible was written, uh, people were copying out these letters and sending them out to the churches so that by the time you get to uh, about the the third century or so, uh, third or fourth century, you have all these copies out there. And by and large, the churches that were out there were using the same, the same books that we have in our New Testament. Okay. And um, Antioch, again, the, those early, some of those earliest Greek texts come from this city of Antioch. Um, Antioch also is in Syria, 
And, you know, one of the very earliest, many people would say the earliest, translation of the Bible from Greek into another language was in the Syrian language. It's, it's called the Syriac Peshitta or Peshito. Uh, that, that term Peshitta or Peshito means, it means uh, common or, and the idea is that that word of God was for the common people. It wasn't something to be shut away, you know, somewhere just for some religious elite to have. God's desire has always been for, for everybody to have his word. And uh, so this, this very early translation of the, of the Bible uh, is the Syriac. That's the language, is Syriac. And it, it's often referred to as the Peshitta. And uh, that's a, a translation of both the Old and New Testament. It does, it is missing a few of the books that we have in our New Testament. I believe that the, the Syriac Peshitta uh, does not include Second Peter or Second and Third John or Revelation. And I'm not sure about Jude. It may not include Jude either. But um, it doesn't have some of, some of those books that we have at the end of our New Testament. Um, but the interesting thing is that it, that it has, you know, some of these disputed readings between different Bible versions where um, some Bible versions will leave out certain verses, that, that kind of thing. Uh, the, that Syriac version, which is like a, a second century Bible, has the readings that, that are in the majority text, that are in the, basically the text that, that, uh, the King James Version and, and New King James Version come from, okay? And uh, on the other hand, so that's that line of, of Bibles that come down from Antioch. On the other hand, what, what's happened, there was a time where that, if somebody was producing a Bible, it was almost guaranteed it was from that line of text because that's, in fact, that I said one of the terms for that line of Greek text is the received text, which meant it was, the, the line that had been received that was being used by the churches. Um, what, what's happened in about the last 100 years, a little more than 100 years, 130 years or so, is that um, textual criticism uh, as a scholarly pursuit has stopped favoring that line of texts that come from Antioch. And there have been some very old Greek texts that were discovered um, there, uh, one of them is called Vaticanus. It was found in the Vatican Library. Nobody really knows where it came from, just that it was it was found there. Um, another text is called Sinaiticus, which was found in the the monastery that is at the the uh, most commonly identified site of, of Mount Sinai. I don't think that's the real location of Mount Sinai, but. Um, uh, a man named Tischendorf was there at the monastery, and they were actually about to throw away uh, this manuscript called Sinaiticus, and he rescued it, literally rescued it from being thrown away. And um, that that's another one of these texts. There's a there's another one called Alexandrinus from the city of Alexandria, and and you know those are those three texts are often by by scholars who are, are studying textual criticism, they may have 5,000 texts that read one way, and then those three texts will differ from that, and they'll favor those three texts. And 
The argument for why they do that is that those texts are very old, which they are. They are very old, but that doesn't guarantee that they're, that they're better. And all of those texts can be traced not back to a place like Antioch, but back to Alexandria, Egypt. And, you know, if you, if you consider um, the effect that Alexandria had on Christianity, Alexandria, Egypt was a, a place of occult learning. And the form of Christianity that's associated with Alexandria is a, a very corrupted form of, of Christianity. Um, a man who's, you know, widely considered to be one of the, one of the foremost early theologians is a man named Origen. And for all of the acclaim that Origen is giving, you start reading what Origen really believed. And Origen was the one who, who kind of started introducing that, that, uh, you know, the Bible isn't to be taken literally. It's all just kind of an allegory. And, you know, these, these kinds of things. And Origen had a lot of, uh, beliefs that really came not from the Bible and not from, from biblical Christianity, but came from Gnosticism. You know, and it came from, from, uh, what's basically a, you know, a pagan cult or a group of pagan cults, uh, known as Gnosticism. And, and so it's interesting that, you know, you have these two lines of text, one that traces back to the place where people were first called Christians, and one that traces back to a place like Alexandria, and the, the modern church by and large has rejected Antioch and has, has embraced Alexandria, okay? And so understand that, you know, when you're looking at different Bible versions and they differ, it's not always just a translation issue. Uh, many times it's because they're using a different text and many of the, the more modern Bible translations are using uh, as, their, as their foundational text something that relies heavily on that Alexandrian text, not the majority text, not the, the Antioch text. Now, with that said, understand that um, the King James Bible, for instance, does not always follow the majority either. There are a few places where the King James Bible uses a minority reading, um, but uh, by and large... Um, the the King James Bible represents the, the received text, and many other Bibles do not. And um, so all that begins here with, with uh, the city of Antioch. And Antioch becomes, for, for Saul, for later the Apostle Paul, Antioch becomes sort of a base of operation. So uh, his, his apostolic journeys that we're about to get into, uh, as you move into, especially into chapter 13, uh, you begin to see Paul and Barnabas. Chapter 13 is where he's first going to be called Paul. Yeah, Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch, and they start going out to these different cities and, and starting churches, and then they'll come back to Antioch. Antioch becomes their, their base of operations for much of the rest of the book of Acts, and that'll be the place they depart from and the place that they come back to. And um, verse 27, Acts chapter 11, verse 27, says, And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And you see then that there's this 
this uh, communication and interaction going on between Jerusalem and Antioch. Now, we don't have, what we don't have from the book of Acts is we don't know what's being preached in Antioch at that time. You know, it, it seems clear that, that Saul began to get revelation from God right away about something new that would be going on with the Gentiles. To what degree that was being preached at Antioch at this point, we don't know. But certainly later on, Antioch becomes the center of, of Gentile Christianity. Okay, so that so that you have uh, Jewish Christianity, we could say that kingdom church, that that uh, group of Jewish believers centered at Jerusalem and you have Antioch, whether it was at this point or at least later on, becoming a center of, of Gentile Christianity. At this point, all that it's really told us is that you have these Grecian Jews there believing, but. Uh, by the time Paul's going out on his, his apostolic journeys, it's not just Grecian Jews, it's Jew and Gentile there at Antioch, and that becomes kind of kind of that center of, of Gentile Christianity. And so you see the interaction back and forth. There are, are prophets coming up from Jerusalem, going to Antioch, and, and uh, you see Agabus there prophesies that there's going to be a dearth, and it says that came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar, and then... Uh, notice as well in verse 29 that it says the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. And they're sending uh, Barnabas and Saul down there to take this relief down to, to Judea. Now, if you wonder why, why did they need relief in Judea? Well, it seems, it seems that it's mentioning here, at least in part, uh, because of the dearth the prophesied dearth, but also understand that at Jerusalem, what we saw early in the book of Acts is that those believers began to, to live having everything common, okay? And uh, back when we, when we talked about that, back in Acts chapter 2, uh, we talked about it in greater detail, but understand that a, a lot of the, a lot of the, the term, the term that economists would use would be a lot of the capital that these believers at Jerusalem had. They sold. They sold off, and they did that in anticipation of the the tribulation to come, and in anticipation of of going into the kingdom where they wouldn't need those things. But what we begin to see, starting in these middle chapters of the book of Acts, is that there's a delay in those things, and. They, they don't go into that tribulation. They don't go into that kingdom. And so having sold their, you know, I mean, people who had trades and things presumably would have sold their tools and, and different things. And these weren't things that were acquired easily. They were probably things acquired over generations. And they sold them expecting to just live off of that, um, you know, right into the kingdom. And here it's starting to run out. And them having all things common, they start to have all things common, but they have a common need. And it's these believers that are outside of Jerusalem, that have gone outside of Judea, and are out among the Gentiles, they begin to send, you know, send money back. Here it says, um, every man according to his ability, they start to send money back to care for those saints at Jerusalem. And so even much later, we see in Paul's epistles, for instance, where he's writing to the Gentile churches about taking up collections for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And that begins here at Antioch as well, 
that that these believers outside of Israel began caring for those needs. Now, the argument that Paul makes later to the Gentile churches is that due to the dispensational change, um, Israel is not, and that believing remnant is not enjoying the, the blessings of the kingdom, and these Gentiles now are, are receiving the blessings of God's grace, and he's saying, you've been made partakers of their spiritual things, it's your duty to minister to them in the, the physical things, the carnal things. And so he places a responsibility there during this transition. He places a responsibility on the, the believers outside of Israel and, and the Gentile believers to minister to those needs of, of those saints at Jerusalem. Now, in a wider sense, you know, we're not in that transition anymore. We don't take up collections for the poor saints at Jerusalem. But in the broader sense, uh, there's a responsibility of, of Christians to help meet the needs of other Christians, wherever they may be. And, um, you know, certainly, certainly in prayer, but not just in prayer. See, they don't just pray for those, those uh, saints in Jerusalem, but they do something about it, and they, they send that relief. And, uh, you know, as we have ability and we know about other believers that are in need, whether they're in our, our same area, in our same church, or whether they're off somewhere else in the world, as we have ability, uh, we ought to meet those needs as well. And uh, so there's, a, there's an application of that that extends beyond uh, just the issues that were taking place here during this Acts transition. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.